Welcome to The New Exchange, a podcast series that explores how everyone has a story to tell. My name is Ken Grant-Pierre, and in a lot of ways, today's episode is a great example of what this series is all about. A major goal of mine with this podcast is to share stories that ultimately feel like a portrait of a person. This chat that you're about to hear with journalist Joseph Darius Jafari is exactly that, and I honestly couldn't be more proud of how this episode came out. Joseph is an investigative reporter who specializes in covering the injustices of the American prison system. He's damn great at what he does and has credits in Rolling Stone, Vice, the Philadelphia Inquirer, and many more. I met him years ago here in New York, and you'll hear about the genesis of this talk within the podcast. But just to give you a quick rundown, Joseph is a funny motherfucker. He also doesn't suffer any fools, and he's lived a hell of a life. In a lot of ways, this episode isn't so much about his career, but more about how his past experiences of being homeless, losing people close to him, and navigating the country as a gay man has led him to where he is today. Before we get into the episode, I should mention a few things. Around the 45 minute mark, we talk about an experience Joseph had that was quite violent. If you've experienced physical violence and are triggered by hearing about it, then feel free to jump by that bit. Also, I'd love to dedicate this episode to the Irish podcaster slash author, Blind Boy. I'm a massive lover of his work and his podcast with Sinead O'Connor greatly inspired how I approach editing this one. If you're unfamiliar with him, then go check out the Blind Boy podcast after you hear this chat and thank me later. I recommend starting with the Christ Foreskin episode, yes, that is seriously what it's called. Alright, I do hope you enjoy this chat, it's honestly one of my favorites and Joseph is such a damn great speaker. This is The New Exchange with Joseph Darius Jafari. Enjoy. This could kind of go any other way because I thought an interesting way to start would be to ask you about a recent local news story you read that just made you shake your head. I say it could go any other way because knowing how America it is, it could either be something humorous or just really dark and depressing. So take it away. Oh, wow. Okay. So the most recent news story that I've read that has made me shake my head. Oh my gosh, I feel like this happens every single day. <laughs> what a loaded question to start with, yeah? I know, right? And I think it's because there's so, there's so much that I read every single day that I just like hit my head. There was something I was listening to, I was listening to The Daily the other day. And so it was the episode about all the, the Canadian native schools, the, the reform schools, and like how they were finding all these unmarked you know, graves. And after the entire thing, it was all focused on Canada, right? It was all focused on how Canada's done this, Canada's done that. And I'm like, oh, God, it's like, this is a, it's a really well done episode. But I was thinking the entire time, when are they going to bring up the American atrocities that we did with this? Like, I live in Phoenix, and there is literally a road one mile away from me called Indian School Road. And nobody ever thought what the hell that means. And it literally is because <laughs> the biggest park in Phoenix, Arizona, houses one of, the, one of the worst, quote, Indian schools in the Southwest. And I was listening to that with my fiance, and like, he was like, oh, this is really terrible. I'm like, yeah, like, when the hell are they gonna bring up American ones? He's like, that's a good, that's a, that's a good question. Like, when the hell are they gonna bring up, like, we've done the exact same thing, if not worse. And it just kind of made me shake my head going like, 
wow, we really like we we love pointing the fingers at other people, but we really we still have a hard hard time reflecting on our own past when it comes to so many issues. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you bring that up because what you said just there now is something that I've been saying to friends quite profusely over like the last like five or six years or so. Whenever like uh, you know that the last president we had when that atrocity happened, I I said to so many friends that you know the biggest issue that is going to come from this is that as a nation we're awful at examining the whys of things so we're all talking about like how this is insane and what a wild thing to live through but it's like hold on a second like how did this happen i often think that like we are so as a journalist i hate it when we do navel gazing i hate it when we just kind of like do like you know circle jerks of our own shit right but i think America generally probably needs to do more of that. We need to do <laughs> a bit more navel gazing, but in the sense of like, we need to really be examining ourselves a hell of a lot more than what we do and what we currently have done in the past. And like, it's just, it's like we can find examples of this in almost every aspect. So, like, the argument of like critical race theory, right? Like, I'm hearing a lot of talk about from like friends, family who really hate the idea of critical race theory. And I just kind of ask them, like, what do you think it is? And they, A, they have no clue what it is. But then B, when you talk to them about like, oh, well, like I asked, so I cover criminal justice all like primarily. And I asked them, do you think the criminal justice system is inherently racist? Do you think there's inherent bias when it comes to, you know, people being incarcerated or people being pulled over? And usually they say, yes, of course, there's an aspect of racism. Like, don't you think that deserves to be analyzed? Don't you think there are aspects of that, you know, come historically from like why that is? And they all go, well, yeah. And it's like, okay, so you actually don't have a problem. <laughs> like you just, you're jumping on the bandwagons. And it's like, they, our history is so unknown to us because we just refuse to take fault in anything. And I, I, think that's, I think that's a purely American thing. And I think I've been really lucky to have traveled the world and talked to people in different places. And the one thing that I hear from, it doesn't matter what country I go to, it doesn't matter who I speak to, it could be a local, it could be an international traveler to wherever I go. And the one thing everybody always says about Americans is that we have a hell of a time ever understanding our history and who we are. It's kind of like when the idea of how could you ever grow as a human being if you don't acknowledge your faults? Like, mm -hmm. we say that about ourselves all the time, but for some reason when we think about our country, that somehow goes out the window, that we can't analyze our faults because we're already perfect. Like, American exceptionalism will be the downfall of us. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we're living through it now. And I mean, there's so much I want to talk to you about. We're definitely going to talk more about this, but... um. I just wanted to like kick off of just like more talking about you as an individual because people have just heard an intro within this episode about how we first met while working together at a media company some years back. And do you know what? No joke. It was during that time where I knew someday I'd be doing a podcast with you because there was this thing. Do you remember like when they did this thing where people would share their life stories to the coworkers oh, yeah. and that? Yeah. yeah. And one of my most memorable experiences of my entire time being there was when uh the way you approached that because you had my jaw on the floor and i just love how you didn't hold that back like do you remember that i remember that very well because that was kind of i mean so yeah when we were at nation swell 
Um, I mean, that job was a care, what we call in the industry, a character building job. I enjoyed the work and it was really interesting, but at the same time, I felt like so much of the work was just not huge on, like, it was all about, it was like impact was the big word that we wanted to use for like what we did with our work. But at the same time, it felt like it was just all through a very white, upper middle class lens of what impact could be. And so when we had to like go around and like share our stories, it was always kind of like, I grew up in Connecticut, I went to Yale, I found like, you know, my calling through the Peace Corps. And I'm just like, I have not had the same experience. I won't say that I didn't grow up like having some, some like some, some like def- definite amounts of privilege, you know, like, but like that privilege did not just come like handedly to me, right? So like I grew up, you know, lower middle class for sure. Like I definitely already had that one leg up, but like my, like the, 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 the privileges that I got as a kid to travel the world as a kid, my mother literally drained her retirement for me to do. I was in the Phoenix Boys Choir, which I later learned in life wasn't free um you know the music lessons that my mother put me through my 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 father put me through weren't free (laughs) literally my i didn't know my mother was making less than i make right now you know having four kids and you know she was making thirty-five thousand a year as a school nurse my stepfather who i was raised by you know was, was a chemist at Procter & Gamble, but I don't think he ever broke 60. And they put me through an art school and they put me through, you know, international travel with the Phoenix Boys Choir. And it wasn't until after, it wasn't until after they both died actually when I looked at the receipts, because uh, we were cleaning out the, when we were cleaning out the house, that I saw like, holy shit, this cost them tens of thousands of dollars. And yeah, so like, I definitely had a privilege growing up that I think a lot of people didn't, but it definitely wasn't like going to Yale and living in Connecticut. And so, yeah, so I I remember that very vividly because also one of my very close friends, she remembers that exact same thing of like, holy shit, this man is discussing how he, you know, ended up being a druggie, ended up being homeless, you know, what exactly happened for him to come back to life, like all this kind of shit, right? And it was a bit different. So yeah, I remember that. I remember that day very well. It was very, it was a very scary moment for me to kind of like expose myself to all these people like that. But at the same time, I'm like, fuck it. Like, this is how I live my life. I'm an open book. You know, I want to lead by example and I want to be open and transparent and honest about all my things. I don't think drugs should be stigmatized. I don't think homelessness should be stigmatized. You know, all these things that I think I, I don't have my shit completely together, but I think I'm a good example of like, you can live a really fucked up hard life and still come out on the other side. Okay. I completely agree. I felt like, you know, I think a, a big reasons why, why that day stuck with me so well as so much as well is because it's so indicative of just like, I don't think it's a New York specific thing, but there's a very New York trait about like how you really never know what the other person next to you is going through but in a multitude of ways where you can look at someone and just like you said, they might seem like they have their shit together. Then you hear what they, what it took for them to get there. And it's beyond anything you could have even imagined. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I will say that there have been many times, it was a big culture shock uh, moving to LA. So I grew up in Mesa, Arizona, which is, you know, 
one of the most conservative cities in America, you know, very religious. You know, I remember there was a seminary on our, at our public school, you got extra credit for going to seminary, but you couldn't go to seminary unless you were a Mormon type of thing. And it was, I felt like everybody kind of had this like really monotonous type of life. And then when I moved to New York and was exposed to, actually when I moved to LA, I was exposed to more people, but truly it wasn't until I moved to New York for undergraduate at CUNY that like, I just kind of like recognized that people have really crazy lives and they have the most like interesting, you know, stories to tell. So isn't that funny though, because it, it, in a way took you coming to New York to recognize that. But prior to that, you already had lived like what many would say, like, like a full life in a sense, like not full in like, um, there was nothing left to do, but just that, like in the way you described like homelessness and going through drugs, it was like, you lived a lifetime. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I technically lived three lifetimes because I overdosed twice and died twice. But, <laughs> but I remember the first time, but it happened like two, three times, you said. Well, I guess, I guess actually, if I, if I was born once and then I overdose, I am dead. Then I, am, then I come back, so that's the second time. Then I overdose again, so it's the third time. So I was born three different times, I guess you could say. Holy shit. <laughs> if you count your first birth as being born, which you know, I think you should. <laughs> Tell me this. This is this kind of this question just popped in my head as you were saying that, but it is something I'm curious about. Do you feel like you have an awareness that when you say that there's a large like amount of people in the world who will never be able to relate to that? Yeah, and I don't, you know. So my my fiance, he he doesn't do drugs at all. Uh, never done it. He's actually allergic to weed. Um, so he hasn't even done that. I mean, I'm actually allergic to weed, but that never stopped me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and when we first started dating and I was telling him about this, he was very empathetic because he's that kind of human being. He's an empath. But at the same time, he never fully understood what it was like for me to tell him what it felt to crave that drug or to crave to an escape in a way that was more than just drinking right and like how that basically how how that how those cravings can lead you down that spiral right and it really came from you know and i think this happens to a lot of queer kids but i think a lot of gay brown boys especially like i think you grow up with a very specific type of person that you're supposed to be. And this could be different for the younger generation. I hope it's different for the younger generation, but I doubt it. Um, And then when you kind of come to terms and like moving to LA was the best thing for me because I was able to break out of that shell of what I thought I had to be in Mesa, Arizona. And I was like a young, not fully out gay guy in West Hollywood, California. And like, I was just able to break free. And, but also that came with a lot of shame, with a lot of self-hate, a lot of like, just a lot of self-hate, I guess. I'll just keep it at that. But then how that then goes to drugs or, and then how that leads to homelessness and how that leads to like prostitution and just like literally selling yourself just to stay alive, not even for fun. I don't think a lot of people can understand that path. And I think it's because a lot of people are like feel that they will never, either they've never like felt that craving before because they've been so comfortable 
yeah. uh, in their skin, in their mental health, in their finances or anything, that they've never felt the need to do that. And good for them. I applaud them for that. Yeah, I mean, my, 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 my fiance is the same exact way. I mean, he's, he's lived quite a life, but he's never been at that moment in his life where he needed to find something to escape so badly that he went down that spiral. And I think a lot of people don't, you know, recognize that happens to a lot of people and it's okay that it happens to a lot of people. It's kind of what we do to help those people. And that's like part of what's, um, I mean, so much of this is like part of what has fascinated me so much about you and why I very much wanted to talk to you because even going so as far back as when you brought up Mesa a few minutes ago, I've been to Mesa when I was a teenager and I remember those experiences so much and how you described it being very conservative. I remember being weirded, like coming from New York, going to Mesa to visit like family friends. I remember being weirded out about like coming across skater kids that were conservative. Like that was something that kind of stuck out to me. And I bring that up because I think it's like really interesting that you ended up finding this path towards journalism. And I I wonder like, what was it exactly that made you realize this is what I want to do? Because did it ever come from there? Or was it like much later on? Oh my gosh. Well, this goes into the entire story of like why I ended up being a journalist, right? I guess it's kind of best just to tell the entire thing, which is when I graduated from high school, I started going to school for politics. I wanted to be a politician. And I quickly realized I didn't want to be a politician, actually, because uh, I was tired of waking up angry every single day. <laughs> um, at 18 years old, I was tired of waking up every, every, angry every single day. Now I wake up every, angry every single day and I stay angry all day. <laughs> but, but even before that, why I wanted to go into politics was because, you know, when I was 14 going on 15, my sister passed away of lupus. And it was a really, really, really horrible time for us because she died as a result of our system, the American system of like, for-profit healthcare, right? So she had lupus, she knew about it, but she didn't have health insurance when she lived in West Hollywood. And when she went to her doctor um, and they said, you need to get health insurance because you have lupus, we're gonna keep this under, under wraps for now until you get health insurance, it's gonna be very expensive. This is of course way before Obamacare. And so she got on Blue Cross Blue Shield, she, got so bad, her lupus got so bad that she ended up being like bedridden on oxygen and Blue Cross Blue Shield then dropped her from her insurance because they considered lupus a pre-existing condition. We couldn't keep up with the bills. We were giving her probably bare minimum care that we could, even when she moved back to Arizona to kind of like live with our family. And she ended up dying of, you know, she'd had, she had a heart and lung failure. And we ultimately couldn't afford the transplant, the heart and lung transplant. And so from a very young age, I felt a very big sense of injustice towards the way that we treat those who don't have anything in this country or have very little. I wanted to go to school for politics. I wanted to be a politician. I wanted to change that. And then I realized I wasn't good with myself yet. So I want to live in LA and be an actor. <laughs> you know do the do the do the artsy things i mean you I, laugh but i could see it happening you do have a unique look i didn't I, I i i was serious about it to some degree but i also i really just needed to get the hell out of arizona 
I needed to get away from a place that was primarily white, that was, you know, not laced with, you know, I, this is also, you know, I grew up in the time of Joe Arpaio, where they were literally pulling people over just for, quote, looking illegal. You know, I was pulled over three different times as a teenager when I started driving and got handcuffed and got my car searched, asked for my papers. I was born in the fucking base in Washington State. Like, I, stuff like, I needed to get, that, get out of Arizona. It wasn't a safe place. Um, arguably still not a safe place for many people. And so, you know, I, I just needed to get away. And like, if I needed to have the excuse of like being an actor, then I needed to have the excuse of being an actor. But what I really needed to do was just get the hell away so I could kind of be good in my skin. And when I got to LA, I, like I said earlier, right? It's like, I was this brand new guy. I wasn't even out yet. I came out maybe a year later fully. And so this is like about 2021. 20, and I just started having a ball. I think there's, I think you see a lot of, you see a lot of people talk about this or you hear a lot of people talk about this. Um, when you are repressed, not just repressed like sexually, but told you cannot be something, you know, recognizing that every single part of you is calculated the way you walk, the way you talk. You, if you do a flick of your fingers, is people, are people going to know that you're gay? I mean, those kinds of things were literally on my mind 24-7. When I woke up in bed, if I stretched weird a wrong way, like, did I, I self-correct it? Like, that kind of shit is real. And it's not just like I had this idea in my mind that people would, you know, not like me for it. Like, literally, people were, you know, being beaten for it and you know people were going missing and cops didn't care i mean the stories go back i mean even to like when i was a teenager to the early 20s like it was just like we still see it happening so when i got to la and i finally came out you know i just kind of let myself loose i had freedom i didn't have to answer to anybody i was disappointing my family which i loved <laughs> and I mean, I mean that with earnestness, like my conservative Catholic family, mainly from the Southwest and from New Orleans, they, so many of them kept looking at me with such like, ugh, Joseph's going down this path. Like, you know, I, you know, you'd hear, you'd hear whispers like from people saying shit. And I loved it because it was, a, it was a slap in their face of like, let me be me. And you guys, you guys want to live in your small world, then live in your small world. But with that also came with a lot of, you know, I think by doing that, I also was, was battling a lot of, you know, self-image issues. You know, I, I remember I was a size 26 waist and literally 160 pounds. And I thought I was the heaviest thing in the world. And it's because like, like being a young gay in West Hollywood in the early, in the, you know, the mid thousands, actually, I guess this, at this point, it's like 2010, 2011, all the same. Um, you know, the look is you have to be pretty, you have to be thin. You have to be like, you have to just look a certain way. Yeah. And if you're brown and bearded and hairy and young, um, that wasn't a look until you get older and thicker and gray. And then all of a sudden you're attractive. So it was, it was, it was, it was a weird time. And 
I ha- so I, I didn't love the way that I looked. I was experimenting with the sexual with my sexuality. Uh, I was embracing a lifestyle that I always knew that I wanted, but never knew how to have. And then I just kind of like fell into a trap of like, you know, I don't, I, I, I want to do cocaine to be thin. I want to do speed to be thin. And then when I got attention from, you know, somebody who was a bartender, I could get free drinks and that gave me status. That bartender was a meth, was a, was a meth head. He introduced me to meth, but I didn't know what love was. And, you know, wanted to know what it felt like to be in a stable relationship and all that kind of shit, right? So it all just kind of like, and it, and it just goes from there. So and where did was, journalism come into play? Well, literally, so what happened is that I ended up homeless and basically I was sleeping underneath a, like a like garbage bin. And the garbage bin had like, you know, like those dumpster trucks that have like the lids on it. And so there was an alley, there was a garbage bin and lid on top of it. And I was sleeping under that because it was like the rainy season. Mm -hmm. Um, It was on King and Melrose, which is where I used to work. And that's where I used to like park myself. And there was this dumpster that had this, basically this bumper sticker or something on it. And it was this Bobby Kennedy quote of, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to murder, I'm going to butcher this quote, but it basically is, uh, some people see some people see the way things are and ask why. I see the way things could be and ask why not. Something like that. Yeah. And it kind of like snapped from me. And something kind of said like, I need to get out of this. I need to do something with my life. I'm tired of being this low in my life. And so I went back to school, called my mom. She literally paid for a bus ticket for me to go from LA back to Phoenix. I went to school for a semester at SCC and I had this professor who took an interest in me and she's like, listen, you're a fantastic writer. Um, you know what you're talking about when it comes to politics and, you know, I can see the fire of like social justice within you. Have you ever thought about being in journalism? And so then I kind of pondered it over because at first I just wanted to be, a, I still wanted to be in the arts and wanted to do screenwriting. And then I gave my, you know, my hand at writing and, um, yeah, I kind of just, everything just kind of fell into place because it was a way to be creative. It was a way to be analytical. And it was a way to be, you know, really heavy handed with like holding people to power to, um, to you know, their feet to the fire. I just felt that it was an amazing combination of all the things that I had wanted to do in my life up until then. And then I recognized that at the same time, there weren't people like me within the industry that had this background, that had this upbringing, that had this, you know, these perspectives. And that's kind of when, you know, I decided to like roll full force with it. And I ended up being pretty, pretty, being pretty good at it. So I kept with it. <laughs> yeah, I'd agree with that. You know, I didn't get the chance to say it while you were talking, but you know, seriously, sorry for the loss on like your mom, your stepdad and your sister, man. Like that's going through that in a life is, is I don't, I definitely don't have the words for it. Like, I, Thank you. Maybe it's because I have dealt with death so much as a child and then into teenage years. And especially like, you know, during my druggy days of like, you know, meeting people and then them overdosing, you know, and even now during COVID, right. I've lost a couple of friends back in New York from COVID. And I, I've, I've always kind of viewed death as just like taxes, like the, like the adage, like it's going <laughs> to happen. And I go to therapy. Really? I go to therapy for this like often actually, because one of the biggest worries that my sister, who's one of my best friends, 
always says is like, you really have a hard time processing things. Like you really bottle everything up and don't, you know, you don't externalize a lot of things. And I'm like, yeah, well, you know, death is one of those things that it's just like, you have to fucking deal with. It's going to happen to all of us. I was just talking to, you know, my partner the other day about like, you know, what I, what I want specifically during my funeral, which is, you know, an open casket with tons of chips and like different <laughs> sauces in my chest and like a taco bar. And literally people cannot like, will have to go up and try these salsas and then they will cry because it's so hot. And so we'll be having a hard time discerning if they're crying because of the salsa, crying because I'm gone. But you see, I, I've known you long enough to know that you're mostly not kidding when you say that. That's the actual <laughs> <thing>. <laughs> That's the I have now I have now said it three different times. This is now fourth and this is going across the world. I when I die, be it tonight, be it in five years or even eighty years from now, I want an open casket with oh my god sorry my father has a landline still <laughs> <laughs> i'm definitely i'm making notes as we're talking and i'm just keeping that in because that was hilarious <laughs> <laughs> i apologize when i first when i first showed up here i'm just like what is that like is that that's the, is that a unique cell phone <laughs> ring <laughs> is the, are we in 2002 what? right he has a landline <laughs> <laughs> Jumping off of like uh, the f- the chip funeral, which yes, people, that's definitely gonna happen. Um, yeah, like, and you kind of answered this on a macro level in the context of your sister, but I kind of want to delve in deeper with you about it because your function as a journalist is within investigative reporting, which, oddly enough, in twenty twenty one in America specifically, it is more crucial than ever. But that said, like, why was it like why investigative journalism? Like, what has it been about this kind of work that intrigues you beyond? the experience that you had on a personal level? So I think people go into journalism for a multitude of different reasons. Some people like the idea of entertaining. Some people like the idea of just informing. Some people like the creativity of it. Some people like the hustle of it because it is when you first start out, it is a, it is a hustle and it's like constantly adrenaline pumping and it's always something new and you become a you become a student of almost every single practice out there, whatever you cover, you have to become like a mini expert. I am one of those journalists and there are plenitude of us that go into journalism for, to be the the fourth estate of the United States. Right. Um, I came into this really from the sense of there is a power imbalance in our country. The people who have the most money or who have the most influence tend to be the ones who get their ways. And as a country, we tend to leave out those who have little to nothing behind. And it's because we value, you know, capitalism, we value grit, and we value success, monetary success specifically. And so we leave a lot of people out of the equation on purpose. And I think that deserves a correction. I think that America is made up of, yes, upper class, middle class, but there's a lot of lower class in this country. And by ignoring them and not listening to their needs, we are doing a disservice. So that's kind of where I go with investigative journalism, right? So when I left New York and moved to Pennsylvania, I was really, I never thought I would ever leave New York. 
that was kind of like, as a kid, my dream was, you know, to live in, you know, high rise overlooking Central Park and <laughs> be a famous writer, very, you know, Truman Capote. That was never going to happen, but it was a nice dream. But um, either way, I always thought I was going to just like, when I land in New York, I'm going to stay there forever. And I left New York and got this job in Pennsylvania covering the state. And it really opened my eyes because still up until that time, I had considered journalism to be a function of just like keeping the powerful in check. But it wasn't until I moved to Pennsylvania and started really working in rural parts of the state that it's not just about keeping the powerful in check. It's also about uplifting the voices of those who need to be heard. And so if there is an injustice done to one, there is an injustice done to all. That can't be any more true when you look at kind of the way that we treat people in the criminal justice system. And it can't only be interesting when Jeff Epstein dies. You know, it can't only be interesting when, you know, Michael Cohen gets released. You know, it has to be interesting when a black man is fasting for Ramadan and gets all of his food taken away from him because it's not allowed to keep oranges in a cell, right? Like stuff like that needs to be well known. Those injustices need to be heard and they need to be read and they need to be seen. Well, what you just brought up at the tail end there is actually something I was going to talk to you about later on, but we can talk about it now because you know, naturally, when I knew I was going to talk to you, I read through some of your pieces. And, you know, that was one of them that struck through me. Like, you wrote a piece last May for the PA Post about Vernon L. Ely Jr., mm-hmm. a 44-year-old Muslim inmate who brought to life the difficulties of Muslim prisoners during Ramadan. And, God, man, you're like, you know, what, what impressed me um, is that initially it didn't surprise me hearing about such mistreatment within the prison system. But I think what that piece does so beautifully is that you did a really good job at conveying both the needlessness and just the trivial nature of such abuse. That was just one example. And the way that that story came about was looking at injustices of Muslim prisoners in Pennsylvania jails. Like so much of the things we do in our criminal justice system is just power plays. And for no other reason, like, so, That story with Vernon kind of came about from a story that, you know, I was just looking at county budgets across the state. Pennsylvania has 67 counties. And so, you know, a lot of county budgets to look at. And I was just noticing that, like, in every single commissary, so where prisoners buy their food and, you know, toilet paper or whatever, almost every single commissary account, their menu listed Korans, sometimes four times higher than a Bible. And I'm just thinking to myself, that's nuts because you can get this shit for free and guaranteed all these people inside the jails are getting Bibles for free because there are probably more, there are are more Christian services in churches than there are Muslim services or Jewish services or Buddhist services or anything like that. Obviously they're getting their stuff for free. And then it kind of spiraled from there to kind of lead lead to that story. But all in all, I mean, so much is just like, the uselessness of our treatment of people in these institutions. And the more I learn, the more I just get really incensed with everything and want to just keep, you know, diving deeper into it. Another example, and this is 
towards the end of like my time in Pennsylvania moving to Arizona. But you know, I had learned about a man who was sexually assaulted by a guard, right? And this guard had a history of sexually assaulting other people, not just men, other women. And trying to get information about that was nearly impossible. And because the system protects themselves. So when I asked, hey, uh, I heard this person got fired. Can I have information on why they got fired? Nope, you can't have that. That's a discipline record. We keep that private. Okay. Can I have the person's, can I have the person's, you know, full name? Nope, that's a personnel record. We're not going to give that to you. Okay, can I have any of the, uh, all these people filled out prison rape elimination acts forms uh, explaining their abuse. Can I have that? Nope, those are confidential. We don't want to give those to you. We, we don't have to give those to you. Can I have their grievances that they filed? Nope, can't give those to you. Those are confidential too. I mean, there's, there's so many ways that we protect abusers within the system that have so much power. And the only way, and this is one of the frustrations about journalism, I can't tell that story or publish that story or even explain, to, explain like, you know, the quotes from the women and the men that I interviewed because it's unverifiable. Because in our society, we have made it that if you have committed a crime or accused of crime, you are from now on an unreliable person to hear a story from. And so whenever I go to an editor and say, hey, I have multiple people telling me this from accusing one person about sexual misconduct against them and others, the reaction from editors, and it's not unwarranted, but I, and I understand why, but this is like the status of it. The reaction from editors is, okay, but we need to have, you know, more proof. You know, we can't just have these, quote, inmates just tell us this, Right. We have made it so that we no longer can elevate the voice of the voiceless because we've given even more power to the abusers. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's like, and I think that's what's so powerful about words, like hearing you put all of that into words is that I think it might seem obvious to some, but hearing just how deep it goes is something that, you know, it just makes it hit home more. And also within how you just described just that, tunnel like nature of like all the roadblocks that you get like i noticed this when we worked together like when we used to sit close to each other that and i already knew this prior but watching the way you'd work it's so interesting how it kind of goes against some of the misconceptions people might have towards journalism where i think sometimes people think about what they see in tv shows and movies about like ducking behind cars or like you know trailing someone and like having like a notepad and maybe there's like a monochrome of that that's true but like it really is so much research and just an endless amount of admin. And can you talk a bit about the legwork that goes in putting a piece together? Because like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I, I mean, I, th- I think it might I, surprise people. <laughs> I would love to peel back the curtain um, when <laughs> almost every single relationship I've had as a journalist, when I explain them investigative journalists, they all their eyes widen up going like, "Oh my god, that's so cool!" Like, what? <laughs> like, I literally. I sit behind a computer and I read thousands of pages of documents and I send out a lot of requests and I make a lot of phone calls and I type a lot. And sometimes I go out on the road and interview people. But, you know, it's, it's, not, as, it's not as glamorous as like media makes it out to be. What it is, it's glamorous and it's rewards. Um, 
what I do, and investigative journalism is different from like what you probably like see like in a lot of newsrooms, which is primarily like the hustle, like, okay, breaking news, gonna get this out right now. Okay, write 500 words right now. We're gonna publish it and we're gonna update it. That's not what, I mean, we all have to start out that way. That's kind of how you like, you know, you, you, you cut your teeth. And then if you wanna prove yourself and do longer work and stuff like that, then you end up doing kind of what I end up doing. Because I, 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 think, I think investigative journalism is like, the, is the, the feather in the cap of what we do as an industry. But um, I mean, my job, I can give you an example of kind of like the story I'm finishing up right now with Spotlight, my, my former job, uh, which is pretty much, it took me a year and a half to gather a bunch of numbers and data and emails and, you know, addendums to policies and through a year and a half of data gathering and form gathering and data analysis, punching numbers in by hand from documents that government officials give you that you cannot just like copy paste. You have to put everything in by hand. And we're talking hundreds and hundreds of Excel's, Excel spreadsheets that are literally converted into a PDF. So, you, so it's hard for you to do your job. All of this takes time. And the biggest stories out there, even the smallest stories out there, actually, I take that back. Even the smallest investigative stories take so much time. It is shocking how much time can go into writing an 800 word piece, which is essentially like three pages, four pages. Like I have spent a year and a half on this story and it's still about a month away from publishing. And it literally is just because it's taken so much time to gather everything and read through everything. I mean, right now in Arizona, what I've been focusing on a lot of is like death, death, uh, death row cases and like a lot of what's going on in the prison system out here. But even that is like, I have 30 tabs open. Each tab is a different Supreme Court ruling and I have to read every single one. And those are like, you know, 80 to 100 pages, you know, and reading every single one. I mean, you just like, that's, that's literally what my job is just to, just to, it absorb knowledge, put the pieces together where the, there hasn't been like, you know, glue before and then present it to the public as like, this is what we know based off of what we've been able to piece together in this picture for you. Well, that's what, you know, like going back a little bit, like at the top of that, you said that you feel like when it comes to investigative journalism, as hard as the work is, it does, you do feel like there's this uh, sense of reward at the end. What do you feel that sense of reward is? For me, it is literally helping somebody. When I will never forget the feeling that I had when there was um, a black man uh, who was incarcerated in Lebanon County, which is a central county in Pennsylvania. And he was um, Rastafarian. And he was in solitary confinement for a year, not for any other reason, but he wouldn't cut his hair. And nobody wanted to tell a story in central Pennsylvania. Nobody did. And then I wrote that story and literally exploded. And then within a day, he was released from solitary confinement. And so, and he's still incarcerated, but like, you know, it was, it was still like, that is a form of torture. That is literally a form of torture. We've acknowledged that in the UN. 
EU acknowledges that. They acknowledge that anything more than four days is torture. Like, imagine a year in a room the size of a, a single stall in a bathroom. And that's all you get. You get half an hour of fresh air every single day, if that. Getting that man released from that cell to at least a different cell to like just be social made me feel great because I didn't necessarily help, you know, him like get, get out of prison because he probably deserved, maybe he deserves to be in prison. I don't know. I don't, like, he, he hadn't even been, hadn't been convicted of anything yet, but the idea of like at least letting somebody be treated like a human being, that's what kind of keeps me going because you get, you get bits of that every here and there. You know, you get bits of that whenever you write a story and then you can see a law change or you can just get the gratitude of people saying like, I have been trying for years for somebody to tell my story or explain what I went through and nobody's listened for whatever reason or another. That's so powerful. I mean, that's, God, there's so many things you've experienced and are experiencing as a person where it's like, there honestly aren't the words for it, which is a beautiful thing in itself considering what your life is. But I mean, well, it's, the fact also, you- it's also really hard though, too. I mean, this is something that a lot of journalists don't talk about. And I'm glad that this like about mental health. Yeah. Well, I actually, there's one, one singular great thing that came out of my time while we were both working at Nation Spell. There was this meeting about trauma and journalism. And I remember this so vividly because I thought I was going to a conversation about how journalists cover traumatic events. What I didn't expect was a conversation around how journalists in their work experience trauma and like how that manifests into things. And so I went and it was an entire conversation around, you know, when you as a journalist are taking in all these different issues from all these different people, your job is to separate your personal self from your business self. So if a woman is crying because she has seen her child die, your job is to go up to her and be empathetic. But at the end of the day, your job is to gather information from this woman and get a quote. At some point, you kind of have to like toss a bit of your humanity away. And being an empath, that's hard, right? So like, I've always kind of been known, like my sister has told me before, like to compartmentalize my emotions. And so as a journalist, going up to a woman, and I remember this very vividly, this actually happened, where one of the first jobs I was on, I had to show up at a shooting, and I was there before the police showed up. It was a kid who was shot in the head with a shotgun. And you could see the mother putting her son's brains back in like back in his head like on his stoop and I had to go up there and I had to talk to her and get a quote from this wailing woman and I never thought that that affected me because I went because I, I, I went back to the office and I wrote my story and that was that like I didn't think anything of it but months later years later after multiple stories like that you know all of a sudden I was irritable I was angry. I was crying for no reason. I just had like immense anger all the time. And at that Nation Swell meeting, these reporters that they were talking about, like how like they had covered like Columbine and 
Parkland, they were saying, oh, I was angry all the time, I was punching walls, I was crying for no reason. And it wasn't until I went to a therapist who were like, holy shit, like you have PTSD. And I'm like, I thought that's something only soldiers could get. I didn't realize journalists could get that too. And that was when I started going to a therapist because and that's, when I was, that's when I got diagnosed with PTSD. And since then, I've been very careful about like, you know, not trying to separate myself from my work too much and not trying to compartmentalize. So even though the work is great and those feelings of gratitude come in from other people, it is incredibly stressful and sometimes sad work. Not just sad because the stuff that you're working on is sad. It's sad because, you know, you're taking on people's trauma. To some degree, you have to be empathetic to it and you have to feel it to properly write their story. Because, and that's another thing that's so kind of wildly specific in the context of journalism. Even when it's informative, there still is that aspect of, needing to have a voice and convey things in a voice and you pretty much you know put it in that way just now at the tail end there but yeah i mean god it's it's also it must be really wild to live and realize that so much of what you're going through requires like a proactive element because at the end of the day like when you consider like the work you're doing on yourself it is from a personal standpoint and a professional standpoint and like recognizing that in both ways it must be very um i don't even know how to describe it like i want to say interesting but i almost feel like that does that's such a little word to describe what you're going through well um drugs help like (laughs) (laughs) psychiatric drugs help um but yeah i mean i think i've learned a lot about how to approach situations differently right so at the very beginning of my work into this I really never turned off. My work and my personal life were a 24-7 mesh. Um, There really was no separation between the two. Now, it's a little old school, but like I have a work phone and I have a personal phone. And even though it's easier by all standards to have just one phone, I very much keep my work phone away. Like I work a nine to six, eight to six job. And then I put it away. Now that's difficult a lot of times because like it, you know, people try to call me at night, especially prisoners who can't get a hold of you until like 10 o'clock when they're out. But you know what, like at some point I have to focus on myself, my family, you know, I'm going to get married. I have like, you know, a family to build. I have my own family that I'm helping to take care of. Like, you know, I have to focus on myself to some degree. And that only makes me a better person, not just as an employee, because I draw my own lines, but also just as a, like, you know, as an empathetic human, because if I have space to focus on myself and I give myself that kind of grace and that kind of compassion, you know, then I can easily make room for other people's burdens too, and digest what I'm experiencing in my own time. And that's something I've had to learn, and I'm still learning, but I've gotten better. Well, that's beautiful to hear, man. And I mean, it just, it's important. Like the importance of that can't be like overstated to any degree. And, you know, we've talked a lot about this, but I kind of want to dig in a bit deeper because 
for people who have been listening, it's kind of obvious that your essential specific beat is within the prison system within America. And I think what's so important about your work is that there's so many ideas, there's so many misconceptions, like, I don't know if I would say positive misconceptions exist, but I would, I'd say there's like positive and negative like inferences that people might have where some people might say, hey, it works. And some people might say, hey, it's obviously very fucked up. I think what's great about your work is it kind of goes into the meat of the bone of like what it actually is. And I mean, it just highlights the realities of what prisoners across various states have to deal with, which is another thing all in its own where each state operates differently to some degree. And I mean, I don't think I ever had the chance to ask you this in such a pointed way, but what do you feel was that compelled you about this specific beat? Because would I be wrong in thinking that there's many investigative journalists who wouldn't even want to touch that world? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I work with somebody right now who environment is her thing, and she wants to focus on environment 100%, and prisons do not interest her whatsoever. And it's not because she's not interested, just because she's built a long line of sources and stuff like that. And like environment itself is just really hard. She doesn't want to touch it. For me, there's two different answers for this. One is why have we only now starting to see, started to see journalists dig into the criminal justice system in the way that they should have over a hundred years ago, right? Why are we now only critiquing the criminal justice system when it's gotten so far along and it's gotten so corrupt and it's gotten this bad under our watch? Why is it that we have allowed it to come this far? And why is it now that we're only seeing journalists like myself really critique the system? That kind of makes me excited to be a part of I'm not, you know, a vanguard or any kind of thing like that, but I am, I, I definitely would consider myself and probably a couple hundred other journalists maybe in the, in, the, in the country that really, truly focus on this and are now experts in the field about this, you know. That's not, a couple hundred in the country is not a lot considering, considering the workforce of journalists across America. I think that what draws me to that is the fact that, like, we're kind of at the beginning of not really the beginning, we're kind of, we're, we're, we're just past the beginning of creating a sense of accountability within our prison system. And I want to be a part of that. And I want to kind of set the stage of like, when the police say this, you say why, or how, like, we don't take their word. We don't take politicians' words. You do not take the police's words. You do not take you're the jailer's word for it. I want to be a part of that and setting those standards and continuing to push those standards further in more newsrooms. So I'm excited to do that. But kind of to the point of it is for so long, we have gotten here because journalists who have covered prisons have always done so from a very racist standpoint. For the longest time, newsrooms were white men who were writing right? And they never had any stake in the game. You know, if somebody, if, you know, when the drug war was inflicted on this country, it wasn't people at the New York Times who were getting affected. It wasn't people at the LA Times who were getting affected. It's people in South Central, you know? Those people don't work at the LA Times. They work at fucking McDonald's. And 
they didn't give a shit. They didn't have any kind of stake in it. They reported on, oh, Reagan is doing this and it might affect black and brown communities, but you know, we're not gonna include their voices. We're gonna take it for what it is. We're gonna use the stats they give us and not question anything. And then it fueled this entire, even the term super predators, that term from the 90s that was, we just kind of adopted from the politicians. You know, we were not critical as an industry in the same way we weren't critical during the Iraq invasion, in the same way, you know, we haven't been critical in other situations, in the same way we haven't been critical of like, you know, Israeli and Palestine conflict, you know, we are, we have not historically been critical of our policing and our institutions. And so that to me, this is a big stain on the face of America, our incarceration and our history of incarceration and really our failure to address our problems within jails and prisons. That is a huge stain on this country. And I continue going down this path because I want to be a person who is known to have tried to fix it and tried to help people and correct this wrong. And even the smallest of ways, even if it's changing a law, even if it's helping one person, that's what I want to be known as. Just like, you know, being able to help somebody who has been degraded, demoralized, and dehumanized by the system. I mean, you brought it up at uh, the top of our talk about like how grateful you are for having traveled a lot and what your mother did for you. And I, I bring that up because I'm sure you kind of know where this is already going, but I'm sure you've experienced traveling, especially in Europe, and talking about American prisons and almost seeing the look of shock on European faces when they, uh, when you tell them about how so many prisons here in America are privatized and how such a for-profit enterprise it is. I mean, yeah, even, even the state, even the state prisons are for-profit if you think about it. I mean, I'm in Arizona now, and this is the first time I've ever had to really deal with private prisons because in New York and Pennsylvania, we just don't really have them, right? They're all public. That doesn't change the fact that like, it's still like a money-making enterprise. I mean, when I was in Pennsylvania, did a, did a huge story about like how, you know, some prisoners were paying $75 a day in room and board to their jail. So like, it's not any different. But yeah, so when I, when I travel, it is shocking to me that, um, it's, it's, it's shocking to me to hear about the prison system in other places. And I don't necessarily just travel to, you know, just to European countries. When I've traveled across Africa, when I've traveled across, you know, Mexico, South, South, South America, you know, places that also have notoriously bad prison systems. I mean, we kind of match them. You know, when I, when, you know, when I go to, when I went to, when I stayed, when I stayed some time in South Africa and I was reporting on like the prosecutions of people who had been accused of rape and how little prosecutions happen and stuff like that. I was like hearing people talk and I'm like, holy crap, we have the same issue in America. And like, that should be, some people would do that and like go, oh, okay, so this is a worldwide issue. I look at that and going, going like, we're talking about South Africa compared to America. Like, the issues that one country has, notoriously bad government that has, you know, still bad issues with racism and apartheid, even though it's gone, like you still have the villages and shit like that and migrant issues, despite that, we should have a better criminal justice system. We should have a better way of like, you know, 
taking victims' words or like and helping people and, you know, making sure that abusers don't get let out, making sure that people are held accountable if they are within, if they're, if they are, you know, if they're jailers. And what I take away from like my travels is, yeah, people are shocked that we have the system, but I'm more shocked that we are sometimes on the same par as some of the, as some people who we consider, you know, our enemies, Iran, you know, so I'm, I'm Persian and, you know, my family's Iranian and they, they, they but my, my father's in Iran right now. My stepmother, my entire family's in Iran. You know, I'm following everything that's happening. I'm, I've been spending a lot of close, you know, time looking at everything. And I make sure it's like on the top of my Twitter feed. And some of the things when it comes to the jails, I'm just like, we do the same thing. <laughs> we, do, we do the same exact thing. I mean, we may not behead people or, you know, do public executions like that, but like, we are on par with them. That should make Americans pause. If they didn't know that before, they should start researching now. I mean, they, that should make us all kind of take a step back and go, huh, if we are no better than our enemies, what does that make us? And this is why it's so important for you to highlight that the way you have, because I think what so many people uh, might miss, and I really just want to like put a pin on this, is that it runs so contrary to what this country tries to sell its citizens and sell people abroad. You cannot be someone who internalizes the idea that America is the greatest country in the world, even if it's from a very well-meaning point of view of doing so, though I don't know how that exists. But even if it's very genuine in its nature, if you feel that way and yet you're okay with the way the prison systems run, it, these are two things that run contrary to each other. They cannot exist. Like, this can't True. be the best place in the world if we treat people like this. Another, another thing that was a big awakening in my mid-20s, because um, what I started to do by the time I was 24, I, loved, I, I used to love long-distance relationships. My favorite thing to do was be in <laughs> relationships because I was able to travel, travel consistently. I was also a freelancer, so I was able to like, you know, do stories in different parts of the world. And I was also able to date multiple people in different parts of the world. Um, but I also loved it because, like, after a while, I could leave or they could leave, like, have my own time and, like, just, like, you know, go us the ways. But in all these different places that I dated people, Canada, London, Greece, um, two guys in London, actually. But anyways, um, <laughs> no matter what, all of them kind of said, it was, it was interesting my first time going to like London and then being like, oh, Americans are incredibly racist. And I'm like, and I was like 24, 25 at the time. I was like, what are you talking about? Like, we have, like we're a colorblind society. And like, yeah, we have like issues, but like, I wouldn't say that like our, our people are like overtly racist. And he's like, no, no, no. And I remember hearing that the first time and then hearing it a second time and a third time. And it finally kind of settled in that even in the most racist parts of the world, South Africa being one, right? They usually kind of say like, America is the most racist place they've ever been to. Not because of what we say, but because of what we don't say versus what we do. So some of the worst kinds of racism is literally my last name being Jafari and being stopped at airports multiple times. And me knowing that I'm being stopped because of the color of my skin and also because of my last name, which is being equated to a religion, which I am not, and 
a group of people which I am not a part of, right? But the government would say, it's not racism. We're not profiling. <laughs> We're not profiling. That's illegal and that's morally wrong. <laughs> everybody can kind of see through that. And the point that I think a lot of people make to me when I travel is like, like in South Africa, my friends are like, yeah, we're, we, we're racist and we know it. Like, and we absolutely like, you know, don't like these people because of whatever we were raised with, whatever. But you guys, you guys say you aren't racist and do the most racist things possible that we do and say it's not racist, it's economic, right? That also really blew my mind open. And that also made me kind of like, always made me question now. So like whenever I question police or whenever I question, you know, Department of Corrections officials in whatever state I'm working in, I don't believe them for one second that some of these things don't, you know, aren't made with racist intention, even like, you know, um, subconscious racist decisions, right? I fully expect it to be because we in America have conditioned ourselves to understand that we can't be racist because we don't say racist things. We do racist things all the goddamn time. I mean, the way you brought that up, it, it, uh, it kind of reminds me of like one of the most consistent things I've seen in my life with uh, friends and from different parts of Europe and like even Russian friends and um, friends from Australia that when they come here, something I've heard them say well throughout the last decade or so is that coming to America was the first time that I was faced with the fact that I was, I'm a white person. Like it's yeah. the, the country is so racist and how it treats other people that you can't ignore when it kind of makes you aware of that you're a white person. Yeah. And the same thing, I will say it has been weird being back in Arizona. I, I left Arizona when I was 17. And so I'm 33 now. So I haven't been back in Arizona full time sit for 16 years now and i will say that as much as the diversity of this place has changed it still it still feels in the same sense that your friends can definitely notice that they are white in america you can still definitely feel that you are brown in america completely and i am not i am not a dark dark skinned man like i am by all intents and purposes olive color but it's one of those, I hate the term passing, but it's what everybody kind of knows. But like here, it's one of those areas where like you can, when you're in a group of other brown people, you feel like you, you're, you pass. And then when you're in a, in, a, in a group of white people, you definitely stand out. Even, even, even as a lighter skinned brown. It just feels weird. And it's hard to explain. And it's hard to kind of like, talk about like the externalities of that like how do you face that because i think some people would say oh you know you feeling that is a you problem you feeling that you are outside of this group of people is a you problem but also i go back to that 17 year old boy who left arizona right and needed to leave because of feeling that you had to be something you know, I don't think that has changed much, you know, especially in suburban America and rural America. Like, I'm in, I'm in the suburbs right now. And I can tell you, I don't hold my fiance's hand walking down the street. Do I think anybody is going to do anything to me? No. Do I fear judgment? 100%. 
same thing when it gets to like, you know, I, and at the same time, I see people, you know, holding hands, walking down the street all the goddamn time. But whenever my guy touches my arm, you know, in places like out here, um, I tense up still. And yeah, it's just, it's hard to explain that level of like, I don't belong. I'm I'm out of place. That's so unfair, man. Like, I know it's something that goes beyond, because you even said it just now there, but it does go beyond, like, the individuality of people. But it is some of those things that I wish you didn't have to experience that, you know? I mean, but that's also kind of like what, that's, to be fair, that's also kind of what gives me a bit of drive. Like, I hate that I feel that way. And if I feel that way as a very outgoing and outspoken, you know, extrovert, God, I know that there are other people who feel worse than that and who probably are really struggling. And I, I don't want to be a figurehead. I don't want to be a voice of a generation. I don't want to be well-known at all. But what I want to do is at least try to help if there is a kid out there, if there's a, even a grown adult out there who has a hard time being themselves or feeling out of place in a, in a, in a, in a place like this, God, I, want, I just want to make it somewhat better for them. <laughs> yeah, and you know, you've done a really beautiful job within this chat talking about like how, you know, in a lot of ways, investigative reporting forces you to be introspective. And I really do appreciate the candor in which you spoke about that. And I think what's so fascinating talking to you, and I'm so curious to just get a sense of like what people think about us talking is that, I mean, you spend so much time with yourself putting these stories together and ultimately making information digestible to people. And sometimes it's like, you know, really dark aspects of life and just like the world around us. But it's so clear that you're not a dour guy. Like you're still a fun guy to be around and you're still you. And I mean, you've talked about therapy, obviously, but with and beyond that, I'm curious, like, how do you feel that works? Like, I'd love to hear you talk about how you feel that your work has taught you to be yourself? Because I think in a weird way, that's kind of been part of it, right? I think 100%. I mean, the journalism aspect is kind of what, it's hard for me to separate. In a different interview, somebody asked me once, like, what would you do if you weren't a journalist? And I would just be, and I said, I would just be dead. Like, because (laughs) I don't know. Just point Well, I don't know what else I could do. Like, I, even the stuff that I do on the side is like a side hustle. I do just to pay my mortgage. Like I don't necessarily, I don't, I don't love it, but I love doing this. I love my job. And how many people do you know who can say that? I love waking up and I love going to work and I love reading and I love listening to people. and I love talking to people. And I love challenging people. But I do think that when it comes to, <laughs> I also, I, I'm also a person that like can easily put on a face, right? Uh, <laughs> I'm not, there are people who know me very well, who can see that even when I am making a joke or laughing, I am dying on the inside. That was kind of a very big point for, you know, my last relationship before I moved to Pennsylvania, when I really started seeing, when I was at Nation Swell, and I was really starting to kind of see my mental health deteriorate. I remember this one time where I was walking down the Lower, on the lower East Side on First Avenue, and I was just crying in the rain. I couldn't explain why. I was just crying and just 
bawling and screaming and I couldn't explain why I was feeling that way. And then I turned the corner and I was at the bar that I was going to meet with friends and I just let it go away. Yeah, I mean, part of, part of it is just, I don't want to necessarily inflict the trauma that I experience on other people. And so I keep it light and I keep it fresh. And also because I think maybe it's just my star sign. <laughs> I'm a Libra, so like I love like I love to be fun and like outgoing and like just make just like want to entertain people. So like I guess it just might just be in my fucking like rising moon that just like I, I want to always be because that's also true. Like I don't this is actually also another thing that I'm going to therapy for that I constantly talk to my therapist about, which is I need to be able to not be okay in front of other people. And I think that doesn't, and to me, I'm just kind of like, oh, well, I'm always very open about like my experiences. Like, no, 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 no. What you need to do is you need to be okay being not okay. You'd be okay being an ugly crier. Yeah. I think at the time when my mother, when my mother died, I was in grad school and I kind of like took it upon myself to be okay crying in the subway for the first time in my life. And just like breaking down, just ugly crying in the subway. And one, that was a big mile, mile like it was, it, was a, it, was, it was big for two reasons. One, because I finally became a New Yorker because I did not, was not afraid of crying on a subway. <laughs> um, and then two is because I was, I was okay being emotional in public. So yeah, yeah, I mean, I, 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 would, I, would, I would agree that I'm generally a, a, a fun guy to hang around, but it doesn't, it doesn't come without like, it's very specific populations. <laughs> well, what you're... Like what you're working through in therapy, like what you just described, I mean, can you think of any other time in life where you would have learned that? Like not even just you on an individual basis, but just like on a human level. Like that's what makes work like that so difficult from an internal perspective. Because if you contrast it with just what it was growing up in this country, yeah, I just, I don't even know where as a person you learned to do that. I don't, I, you know, I'm sure there are other professions that allow you into the human psyche on multiple levels. I mean, obviously, you know, the social, the social therapies, the, you know, psychologists, psychiatrists, the doctors, you know, the medical, medical workers. I mean, hell, even police, even police and firefighters, right? They, they probably get to see a different part of human psyche. But I do think as a journalist, it's different because take police, for example, you know, you're really viewing everything from a solve the crime, you know, and help a victim, right? Um, and it's always kind of hero mentality. Um, same thing with um, same thing with doctors. Same thing with you know, like, like ER doctors and stuff like that. But with journalists, I feel like not only is it your job to solve the crime and be the hero but it's also your job to be a social worker. And it's also the job to kind of be both the hand that gives and also the hand that kind of takes away. And that's a really delicate balance and it requires a level of empathy that I don't think you get in a lot of other professions. There are, there are plenty of professions that do that, but I, I, think, I think there are, there are far and few between that allow you to not only help somebody, but also take power away and eventually hurt somebody. Yeah. And, you know, before we go, this kind of leads very nicely into what I wanted to ask you last, which, 
you know, I think funnily enough, a lot of people would have assumed this was going to be the first thing I was going to ask you, but I saved it to the end because I figured it'd be a nice thing to kind of explore in depth because I feel like regardless of where people have found themselves in like the last couple of years, it's clear that the world, overall, not just America, but the overall world's perception of journalism is fractured, but in a way where like people do understand to a degree that it's still essential, especially within the functionality in the world, especially going to what you talked about, about like how in a way investigative journalism functions as a means to hold, you know, the powers that be's feet on fire. And it feels weird to ask about the state of journalism, but I think what makes it interesting is that it's not necessarily a static thing. Like the way things are now are different than they were even 10 years ago. So I wonder, like, how do you feel where journalism is within this kind of post-Trump, almost post-pandemic time? Because this is a very, it's the weirdest time where I feel like most of us are ever going to live through. Yeah. Um, it's hard because journalism, you're right, it's in flux. I mean, Ken, don't bullshit yourself. I mean, even this is a part of journalism, right? It's, it's bringing, it's the, the, the definition of journalism has changed so dramatically over the past years. And I think for the good. I'm not a huge fan of citizen journalism. Um, I think there's a lot of things that I do that the general public can't just pick up a phone and do. There are, there are different levels of ethics and different levels of like legal worries that I have than somebody who just picks up a phone and publishes something. That being said, I, I, I do think it's great the fact that the definition of journalism has broadened so much because it's given people who don't have the ability to see themselves in the news finally see a place to put their issues. I find it by, I have like a, a work mission that I want to do for like helping people. And I have like an actual work mission that I want to do within journalism. And I want journalism to be more inclusive. And that's not just in how we do stories. That's also within our newsrooms. Like I'm taking today and tomorrow off. Like right now it's Monday. You know, July 19th, it's the first day of Idalada. Like, I'm, I'm taking today and tomorrow off to cook stew and celebrate and have, like, a nice feast for me, my husband, and, like, my family tonight. I think I'm the only Muslim person in the entire newsroom. And Arizona is so, like, there's, I, I, I don't know the exact demographics. Yeah, I haven't really looked it up. But I, I know there are four mosques around me. Like, I want to see more of me in the newsroom. I want to see, and I just don't think we're there yet. And even when we are there yet, I can't tell you how many times I've walked into a newsroom that I've been, you know, used in before and truly used in, in like the meaning of ascent, in the meaning of the word, right? Which is like, oh, here's a brown gay tattooed guy. Like we're meeting our numbers. But when it comes to the issues we want to talk about, nope. We don't, want, we don't want to hit those. We don't want that perspective because that is somehow biased or something like that, right? Performative diversity and inclusion is a real thing that we as a newsroom have now adopted. Like, you know, at the very beginning of George Floyd, really George Floyd was kind of like the, the, the turning point in a lot of newsrooms because finally black and brown people were finally standing up and saying, newsrooms, no, you cannot come in and like stampede on this thing like you do every single year 
and not include our voices and not do this with historical accuracy. You know, they finally have like, you know, said like, okay, we're gonna hire more people of color. We're gonna hire more diverse you know, background people. But from what I hear from my other journalism, journalism friends and the other people who are in other newsrooms and then also in part of as investigative teams is that it's very performative. It's very, yeah, we'll hire you, but we still don't want to do that. We don't want to use that wording. We don't want to use, we don't want to change the use of that wording because, quote, readers. So, yeah, I mean, I guess the, the, one of the most stunning things I ever heard in the past year was when I was, at, when I was at Spotlight and we had to do this diversity training with the Philadelphia Inquirer, our parent company. And somebody said very openly that, oh, well, you know, our readers aren't the people who we're writing about. I'm like, <laughs> what? Are you really trying to say that black and brown people are not going to subscribe to news that they like? Bitch, are you kidding me? Like, we all have Netflix. Like, we all pay for shit. It's like, not a telling statement. Right, exactly. Like, so you want to write for people who pay you, but people who have money are the people who you think have money are white people, white old people. And you're dismissing an entire group of people who may have $5 a month to pay for your journalism, but you don't think they're worth including because the people who have historically supported you are white. Like that to me was the most telling thing I've ever experienced recently. I've had other experiences in my past, but that was something where I thought, okay, we're over this hump. People aren't like saying that bullshit thing of like, well, black people don't read. <laughs> and there was like, there was this person who just like openly said it during a fucking meeting. And I'm just like, wow, we still have a long way to fucking go. <laughs> God, I mean, everything you just brought up really highlights something I've appreciated about you a lot over the years. And you've done this like when I've been around you in person, but also on social media where you've been so open about your feeling towards the need of more people of color and especially as well LGBTQ voices within the world of journalism. And you just eloquently expressed that so well. And I just think it's interesting how that's been a very consistent thing about you as a person. And I, I mean, you did such a good job just now, but I think it's just important to also say that I think part of why you feel that way is because you see it as well as the fact that there's perspectives that we're not getting. And at the end of the day, how can you get the full story if you're intentionally leaving out the perspectives and the ideas of marginalized people? True. You can't. You can't get the full story. Um, it's that damn landline again. <laughs> um, Continuity. It's you all, look. you know what it is. You know who it is. It's these, your car warranty is up. <laughs> oh my God. I get, I get at least, like, I want to, uh, I'm not, this is even hyperbole. I get at least four to five of those calls a week. And I've gotten to the point where, like, I do want to challenge the people. I'm just like, hang on here. Like, I live in New York. I, I don't have a car. You should know that. When my mother died, we sold, our, we sold our house, right? That was eight years ago at this point, eight years or six, seven years ago. I still get calls about roof repair. <laughs> <laughs> and home warranty and i'm like 
what is like your records are fucked man like <laughs> you know what there, there is a part of me that does sympathize with that person just the idea that there's a human being where that's their job well it's all robocalls for me <laughs> yeah i get a mixture i get a mixture of the robocalls and someone who clearly is just like on that last call before they either go to lunch or go to like the car parking lot. And I'm just like, come on, man. You don't need to do this. Thank you so much for checking this out. Be sure to subscribe to The New Exchange via Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you stream podcasts. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you.